Um, John starts off today's text this way, uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin. So I want to just uh, pause here for just a moment um, because I want to remind ourselves of, of where we're at and, and what's going on in, in this letter. It's a letter to a church. And, uh, and John is, is writing this because there's some stuff going on in the church um, there are uh, there's some kind of dissenting faction. There is a deep argument going on in the church. And, and we don't really know exactly what the argument's about, but we can infer some things from the text. So we think that the argument, it, it, it has something to do maybe with like the nature of Jesus. You know, is he really 100% human? Is he really 100% God? And people asking questions about like, well, what, how are we supposed to live our lives? You know, how are we supposed to respond to, to, to God becoming man and coming to earth? Or is this uh, about just um, sitting back and waiting to go to heaven? Or what's our life supposed to look like? And the arguments had gotten so deep that scholars think that there's a group of people that were just like, peace out, like we're out of here. And they're causing dissension and deep arguments and deep division in the church. And so John writes this letter. Uh, he probably started this church and he writes a letter back to them. And if you were here uh, either last week or the week before, man, he comes out of the gate strong. So like the first words he writes in, in chapter one are like, look, we announce to you the message we have heard. And if you, and if you read it uh, with, the, uh, with the idea that there's a church division going on, John is essentially establishing his authority. You're going to listen to me because I was there with Jesus. I saw it. I was there when things happened. But this, you notice, there's a distinct shift in the tone. Because what's the first phrase of the passage? My, my little children. And, and if you read it, like, you'll just see that. That he's like, look, this is the message. I'm going to tell you what's up. I've been there. I was, this is what's going on. And then all of a sudden, chapter 2. Okay, my, my dear children, some texts say. And he's shifting his tone, his focus. And he starts to write to them about just some other things that's on his heart. He doesn't want to talk now about the dissenters. He doesn't want to talk necessarily about the arguments going on. He wants to speak to his church. He knows these people. And so he says, look, I'm writing these things to you so that you don't sin, so that you don't miss the mark. But if you do sin, okay, he says, we have an advocate with the Father. And then he names the advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And then he says that Jesus, he is God's way of dealing with our sins. Not only our sins, but the sins of the whole world. So what I want to do today is, is there are a few concepts that just shout out to me in this, in this passage. And they're Really strong, centrally, uh, there's kind of central biblical words in the New Testament especially. And the first word is uh, the word for advocate, which in Greek is the word paraclete. Let me hear you say paraclete. So uh, paraclete is, uh, for us Christians, it is generally synonymous. The paraclete is generally talking about the Holy Spirit. All right, What we believe is the third person of, of, our, uh, uh, of the Trinity. Uh, but it is, uh, it is a word that is also common in the first century. So not only does it have this theological significance to us, it also has a significance just for them as first century people. They get this letter. They hear, 
You have an advocate. You have a paraclete. That means something to this group of people. All right? So uh, I want to kind of unpack what this word means because it, it is a really, really rich word. Um, and I'm going to have to have um, a volunteer for at least part of it. Um, the word in English can mean, amongst other things, uh, an advocate. It can mean a consoler. It can mean uh, an encourager. It can mean, uh, you know, uh, a legal term of like a lawyer. And what I want to do is just pause because I think sometimes if you've been a part of faith for a while, you just hear those things. You're like, oh, yes, yes, yes. Consoler. Oh, yeah, yes. Advocate. Oh, yeah, yes. Holy Spirit. I don't know if we should just blow by that. So to illustrate this, uh, I'm going to need a volunteer. And, and, and I, I would really ask if there's like a single mom is there, like, that would volunteer to just, you don't have to do anything crazy. Is there a single mom that would help me? out. Okay, Karen. All right. Everyone say hi to Karen. I know Karen. She's awesome. So paraclete is this word, like I said, you know, it can mean all kinds of things. Consoler, advocate, encourager. And I just wonder sometimes if we realize like the richness of that word and the richness of the reality for our lives. And so here's what I want to do. Karen. Raising kids as a single mom is hard. Mm-hmm. I want to encourage you to keep going. Keep working. The, the labor that you have investing in their lives matters. And every time that you step up to the plate with encouragement or discipline or just love, it makes a difference, not just in their lives, but in the, in the whole world. So when you feel like you can't go on, I want to encourage you to keep going. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thanks. Did you ever think about the fact that The Spirit of God wants to come alongside you in your moment of darkness or or the time when you have just, you want to give up. And the counselor, the advocate, the paraclete is there in us, with us, saying, you can do it. You can hang in there a little more. And I guess I would wonder this does anybody need encouragement in their life? Because <laughs> John's saying, look, when you have stumbled or when life just gets too much, we have an advocate who wants to speak deep words to us. And I think we can all use it. So that's one sense of it. But like I said, it's a, it's, a, it's a nuanced term with many, many different meanings. And, and the other sense of it is actually comes from the legal world in the ancient world. And the advocate, the paraclete in the legal sense of the word was basically your lawyer. And when you found yourself in court, 
because you've done something wrong, you know who showed up at your side? Your paraclete. And in this case, the paraclete doesn't speak to you. As a consoler, the paraclete speaks to you. As your advocate, you know who the paraclete speaks to? The judge. And so in this case, you stand there in the court and your paraclete stands up beside you and he says, Judge, I need to tell you that there's no sentence to be passed here. Because John says, our paraclete, our advocate, our lawyer named Jesus has dealt with sin. And so we stand there and the advocate stands beside us And he says, shh, shh, you be quiet. Let me talk to the judge. Judge, it's dealt with. Judge, there's no sentence to be passed here. Because I paid it. I dealt with it. And so let let me unpack this. Every little area of brokenness in your life. Every resentment that you hold. Every action that you wish you could take back. Everything that you've seen that you wish you could unsee. Every thought that you've thought that you wish you could unthink. Your advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous one, is standing beside you. And he goes, judge, judge, judge. This is why I came. And this is why I went to the cross. Because, judge, you don't have to pass a sentence. I've taken care of it. That's what he means when he says, look, if you've stumbled, guess what? You've got a paraclete. And do not doubt that he'll show up at your side when you need him to encourage you or to plead your case to the judge. Amen? So, John's speaking to this church and he's like, look, guys, children, children, children. First of all, do not forget that God is for you in the deepest sense of the word. And then he moves on and he says some things that that he actually kind of like uh, threads it through the rest of the passage. So um, just kind of starting in verse three, this is the first, I think the first time he uses the phrase, this is how we know. This is how we know that we know him. And what does he say? If we keep his commandments. And then he says, the one who claims I know him, but doesn't keep his commandments. Well, he's a liar. And the truth is not in this person. Strong words. But the love of God is truly perfected in whoever keeps his word. And again, this is how we know. This is how we know that we are in him. The one who claims to remain in him ought to live in the same way. As he lived, and then he, he goes through this extraordinary passage, which I think is kind of funny. Like I'm just imagining him writing this or dictating this. Dear friends, I'm not writing a new commandment to you, but an old commandment that you have from the beginning. The old commandment is the message you heard. Wait, wait, wait. On the other hand, I am writing a new commandment to you. And you're like, is it old? Is it new? What is it, John? I don't know. But he's basically, he's emphasizing this word, commandment, commandment, commandment. And you say, okay, well... That sounds like a tall order. Go back to the previous uh, slide. If we keep his commandments. And you're like, ooh. Keep Jesus' commandments. Well, 
let me just kind of make this, make this clear. We're going to explore this for just a moment. You see, um, this is the letter of 1 John. Uh, scholars almost unanimously agree that the same guy that wrote this letter also wrote what we call the Gospel of John, one of our four stories of Jesus. And so if you really want to uh, go to the, a deeper level with this letter, you've, you go back to John's Gospel. And if you read it, you see that the language is so similar. And there's so many concepts. And lucky for us, Jesus actually tells you exactly what he means here. Because in John 13, Jesus tells his disciples, I give you a new And what's his commandment? What's his commandment? Love each other. So John says, if, if, you know, if you want to know how you know, how we know God, keep his commandment. And what is his commandment? Love each other. Just as I have loved you, so you must also love each other. And just in case we didn't get it the first time, two chapters later, Jesus says it again. This is my commandment. Love each other just as I've loved you. So when John uh, unveils this to this church who is already suffering from dissent and arguments and division. And he says, look, if you want to know who's kind of on the side of, of God and Jesus, look at who's loving each other the best. And there's all sort of implications for this. Uh, when, he, when he says this in the text, he says a couple times, look, keep his commandments. Keep his commandments. That's the thing. And the word there is this great word that it, it, it means keep, but it also means guard. Guard this commandment. And this is where I, I think about the church. And I think about the church sometimes, uh, not just in North America, maybe all over the world. But I think about all the things that the church guards besides the commandment to love each other. Ever been a part of a faith community that said, we're going to guard, I don't know, the color of our carpet. We're going to guard who gets to come to church on a Sunday. We're going to guard what we think, you know, has to be true if you want to be a part of this community. You better believe all of these things. John here says, you know what you better guard? You better guard the commandment to love each other. And we have a tendency, I think, in, in, in faith communities to uh, get the, the, the me and God part and to put it a little bit before the me and other people part. And let me just tell you, I heard this this week. I love the way it was put to me this week. The concept of saying that you can love God without loving other people would be utterly foreign to John. Oh, and by the way, to Jesus. They cannot be separated. John just says, look, you want to know who knows Jesus? Look at who's loving each other. Because that's what he commanded us to do. So, alongside that, he says in verse 5, he makes this great challenging statement. The love of God is truly perfected 
in whoever keeps essentially the word, the, the command to love other people. So he says, look, the love of God is perfected in whoever can love other people best. Right? Look, I'm going to be utterly honest here. When I read that for a long time, that really challenges me because you know who, you know who I don't love very well? Other people. You know why? Because they're people. And do not pretend that you don't have them in your life because I know you do. Right? So I want to explore uh, the word perfect. Because I think we read that and we're like, well, that's for God. I'm, I'm human. God knows I'm not perfect. And John says that, well, that's how the love of God is perfected. But God knows I'm not perfect. So I can just take a pass on that verse. All right? The Greek word there is the word teleos. Let me hear you say the word teleos. Teleos, uh, it, it does mean, it can mean perfection. It's used all through the New Testament. It can also mean the word mature, brought to fruition, uh, the way it's supposed to be. It can also mean complete. So John is saying here, like, look, uh, whoever can get this loving other people thing right You are loving completely. Like that is how God's love is made complete, brought to fruition, maturity in you. That makes it a little more accessible when I don't have to think about perfection. I can think about, well, maturity. And hey, I just got an ARP thing in the mail. So I'm I'm pretty good with the maturity thing. (laughs) But there's more. Because uh, what I want to do is explore what completion and what maturity looks like. And I want to start it this way. Uh, the, the older I get, the more I've lived life, uh, the more I wish I would have realized something that I believe to be true now. And that is simply this, uh, that the life of faith and the journey of faith doesn't work all that differently from the rest of my life. Let me explain what that means. Um, I played, you know, I play guitar. I've played guitar for a long time. I worked very hard at it. Uh, I didn't emerge out of the womb a guitar player. I worked at it. I think somehow in my life of faith, I just always thought that I was supposed to come out of a Sunday gathering and be complete. And I never realized that there are some things that I could pursue that helped me grow. I wish I would have learned that a long time ago. I knew how it worked musically, but I never thought that faith worked the same way as learning an instrument or if you're an athlete, learning a sport. Let me, let me explore this a little more. Um, one of the ways that you pay a high compliment to an athlete is you call him like a complete player. Everybody ever heard this phrase, like, you know, the, the arguments, you know, the complete player, Magic Johnson, LeBron, Jordan, you know, whoever you want to pick. A complete player, they can do it all. They can defend, they can score. World Cup's coming up. Complete soccer player. Is it Lionel Messi? Is it Cristiano Ronaldo? Complete, complete package players. Or, or musically, a complete guitar player. You do it all. Play rhythm, play lead, play for the song, know when to play, discipline, maturity, all that, okay? That uh, doesn't just happen to people. 
uh, there's an FSU professor, actually, who studied this more than anybody else. His name is Anders Ericsson. And he coined this phrase, deliberate practice. Anybody ever heard the phrase like 10,000 hours? You got to put your 10,000 hours in before you can become an expert or something. Well, what people don't ever really talk about is that you don't just put 10,000 hours in at something and you're going to be good. I can't dribble a basketball 10,000 hours and become an expert basketball player. Erickson says, look, it's not just the hours. It is how you structure that time. And he calls it, it has to be deliberate practice. And again, what I want to do is, what I want to challenge you is like, look, we think that somehow the life of faith and the spiritual life is different. And I want to show you how it's not. Because Paul said, or John says, look, perfection is not just a goal. It's also a process. So this is the way Erickson says, first of all, you have to embrace the goal. You want to be great at something? First, embrace the goal that you want to be great at it. And I think, again, this is when sometimes church people, they go, oh, yes, sure, amen. Do you really think that Jesus wants to turn you into a a vision and a version of himself in your job, in your classroom, in your home? Because the biblical story is he does. His expectations and desires for you are that you would be a completely loving person. And so sometimes we just go, you know what, I don't know if I I can embrace that goal. I'm just telling you the biblical vision for you is that you would love perfectly and completely and he believes it's possible. For you, for you, for you, for you. Everybody. Embrace the goal. Embrace the idea that you can become the Jesus that your family, your work, your school needs in that space. Then Erickson says, look, what you need to do is start early. And I don't mean age early. Like that doesn't mean the E3 kids has like got a leg up on us. <laughs> Erickson literally means get your tail out of bed. Because people who get started on the things that matter most in their life tend to get those things done before the world comes calling. And so for this, I would just say, hey, how do you structure your morning? You know, is it get up, slam the coffee down, and then, oh, hey, I just ended up at work, and I don't know how I got here. (laughs) Or do you give the first part of your day to your practice of pursuing God? Pray, meditate, read, first thing, before the world comes calling. Next thing he says, most people need a mentor or a guide, a coach, to give them feedback. I mean, I can imagine, again, take the basketball. Like I said, I'm just out on the court, and I'm just like, I got, I'm dribbling, you know, and I'm left-handed, and I'm like, oh, watch, I can do the right hand too. And I can fool myself into thinking this is going to get it done until a coach comes up and goes, uh, bruh, um, have you ever watched an NBA game? And I go, wait, you mean this isn't it? Look, I can even switch. Like, and he's like, like, we can fool ourselves into thinking that what we're doing is actually accomplishing the goals we want until we get a coach or a mentor or a guide that gives us some feedback and says, actually, there's better ways to do that. Actually, you need to do less of this thing and more of that thing. Eric, less pizza. 
more weights. I don't know. So get a mentor, get a guide, get feedback on what you're trying to do. The next thing he says, establish a rhythm. Establish a rhythm. And physically, this means, look, there's times you just need to exert yourself and then you rest. What's this look like spiritually? Does this transfer spiritually? Yeah, it does. Here's what I would suggest to you. You see, I believe, and this church believes, that, that we've all been given natural like gifts from God, supernatural things that we just do naturally. Like we, It's just like music just kind of flowed through me. I gravitated toward it. I know people who just lead naturally. It's just a gift that God gives them. And you should be in that element where you're just in the flow. But you know what you should do occasionally? Do something hard. Do something that you don't do so well. Stretch yourself. We got a trip to Guatemala coming up in uh, just a few weeks. Uh, I've been there a few times. And you know why I went? I went because I needed to do hard stuff. Because it's not standing up on a stage in an air-conditioned space and just, Jesus loves me, this I know. It is go out and haul cinder blocks for six hours. Do hard stuff and then rest and learn from it. Right? Don't just do the easy things. Stretch yourself. And Erickson says this, commit to a ritual. Commit to a ritual. Don't do this once a week and think, you're, oh man, okay, I'm going to get it done. Like here's how I did my prayers for, for Monday. I'll see you next Monday, God. He says, build this into your life every day. Every day you get a little better. You get a little better. You practice, you practice, you practice. And you can become a complete lover of humanity. Because that's what Jesus wants for you. Most of the time, we're the ones who bail out on the goal. Jesus, you don't really think, you, you don't know me like I know me, Jesus. And Jesus is like, actually, I do. But it doesn't matter where you start. It matters where you end up. And it's possible for every single human being. Uh, the last couple minutes that we have left, um, I want to just kind of uh, summarize what this passage says to me and what I think the takeaways are from it. And then I want to push on one other sort of idea. The first thing is, look, listen, if you get nothing out of this, I believe that somebody here this morning needs to be reminded that God is for you. That his fundamental posture towards you is one to cheer you on. And want to stand beside you and tell the judge, no, 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 judge. No, I got this. It's been paid. There's no shame anymore. Somebody needs to hear that. The second thing is, is simply, uh, listen, E3's always been a church that has decided to guard love. And we will continue to guard love. We will keep the commandment to love each other as God loves us and as we love God. Because Jesus said so. It's that simple. Last thing. To get better at loving people, we need to practice. Winging it is no better than like jumping into a one-on-one game against Michael Jordan. You can hope all you want to hope, but the results are not going to be pretty. Practice. Practice your faith. 
And if I can get really, really specific, um, when I was practicing guitar or if you've ever practiced a sport, do you get any better if you practice the things that you're good at every day? No. What do you have to do? You identify the areas where you are weak. And you go, man, I got to work on this area. Now, what does that look like with a human being? I got, can, I, can I be honest with you? There are people, um, you know, occasionally that... We'll, we'll, there are people in our lives sometimes that we, we, we have to ascribe a label to. They're, they're EGR people, extra grace required people. <laughs> and again, look, I'm being honest with you. I've got them in my life. Some of you might be them. And I might be yours. We all have people who are difficult for us to be around, do we not? Those are the people you should be practicing with. The people who are different than you. Now listen, you may not be able to go from, from uh, to, oh, let's, let's just go out and hop, skip down, you know, capital circle. You may not be able to go from here to there all in one sitting. So you know what you do? You practice. So the next time they say something in your growth group, the next time you see the Facebook post, why you're still on Facebook, I don't know. But the next time you see the Facebook post and you want to just, okay, I'm going I'm to unload. You know what you can do? Here's the word. You ready? Curiosity. Be curious. Tell me why you think that. Instead of unloading on them. Sit, breathe, and practice loving somebody. You might learn something you didn't know. And it's going to take time, but you're never going to become a completely loving person if you just hang around the people who are easy for you to hang around. And I know this community, look, we've got, in one hand, we've got divisions in this community, political, economic, socially. We do a pretty good job of staying together, but we can always do better. So practice Loving people. And when you do that, do not doubt that you are following the way of Jesus in the world. Because he said it. My commandment is to love one another. Amen? There's a few more words in this section of scripture. um, And scholars don't know if it was a song. They think it was a song maybe that the church sang together. Or it could have been a, a, a poem or, or something. What I'd like to do is to read this as a, as a blessing and an encouragement over our community. So uh, I'm going to ask you guys to stand up. And um, John just writes, you know, he uses little children again, parents, young people, adults. I, I don't think, I think John is actually trying to, trying to just cover all his bases. I think when he writes these words, he's trying to tell the church, everybody, this is for everybody. And so I want to read these words to us as a community. And I want you to hear them as a blessing to you this morning. So, little children, Element 3 Church, I'm writing to you. Because your sins have been forgiven through Jesus' name. Parents, Element 3 Church, 
I'm writing to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. Young people, Element 3 Church, I'm writing to you because you have conquered the evil one. Little children, Element 3 Church, I write to you because you know the Father. Parents, Element 3 Church, I write to you because you have known the one who has existed from the beginning. And then I love the way it ends. Young people, Element 3 Church, I write to you because you are strong. The word of God remains in you and you have conquered the evil one. Let's pray.